your Bible again, we will turn to 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, and chapter 23, and right at the end of chapter 23, really. I'm going to read from verse 36 of 2 Kings 23, and we'll be reading into chapter 24. It's one of these places where uh, you need to read verse 36 and verse 37 of the previous chapter just to get the context when you come into chapter 24. So 2 Kings 23, and we're reading from verse 36. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zebudah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the children of Ammon, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah, to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did. And also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Now the the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his stead. And the king of Egypt came not again any more out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt onto the river Euphrates all that pertained to the king of Egypt. And Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months, and his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother, and his servants, and his princes, and his officers. And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem, and all the princes, and all the mighty men of valor, even ten thousand captives, and all the craftsmen and, sl- and smiths, none remained, save the poorest sort of the people of the land. 
And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon. And the king's mother and the king's wives and his officers and the mighty of the land, those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the men of might, even 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, a thousand, all that were strong and apt for war, even them the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. And the king of Babylon made uh, Mataniah, his father's brother, king in his stead, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was twenty and one years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamital, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, until he had cast them out from his presence, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And we'll end there at the end of chapter 24. That's very near the end of the of Second Kings. Uh, the remainder uh, speaks then again of the Babylonians coming back and putting an end uh, to the land, really. So, but we leave the, the reading there at the end of chapter 24. We trust the Lord to use his word. Well, if you take up your Bible um, and turn with me, not to the passage we read, but turn with me instead to Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 1. And we'll take a brief reading from this chapter and want to give our attention uh, to some of it today. It's my intention to begin today uh, a new series. We, obviously, if you remember, we finished our series in First Thessalonians a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I'm looking to begin a new series in this book of Daniel. Now, I'm conscious that some of you were at the Easter camp a couple of years ago where I preached a number of messages sort of scattered throughout this book. Um, those will have been a, a little bit different in nature, so uh, there might be some overlap, of course, in, in content at times because, uh, well, we're teaching whatever whatever set before us in God's Word, but um, we're taking more of a systematic look through the book um, of Daniel. Uh, that's the intention anyway, and we'll, we'll see how we get on. Um, in the Lord's will, but uh, we read together first of all from uh, the first verse of chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, uh, 
and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. And we'll just end there at the end of verse 7. Let's just take a moment and bow in prayer and seek the Lord's help together. Our Lord and God, we want to thank you for the scriptures of truth. And once again, what a blessing is ours to find ourselves here gathered around thy word, especially when we're conscious of many others who don't have the same access to the scriptures of truth. But we pray, Lord, that you would give unto us the help of thy spirit, that you would teach us and instruct us and apply your word in the appropriate manner to every heart. Undertake for myself, give me power from on high to preach your word by your spirit, I ask in the Savior's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Whenever God called Abraham to follow from Ur of Chaldees, Abraham began what would be a long pilgrim life. And it was a life of following God, yes, on earth, but following God much further than that. Hebrews 11 verse 10 says that Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Uh, by faith, Abraham lived a pilgrim life. He recognized that his true home was not in Ur of Chaldees, nor was it even the land of Canaan, but it was heaven itself. He looked for a city with foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Uh, and it's not just Abraham, but any child of God who has entered into Uh, faith in Jesus Christ has begun that same pilgrim journey that Abraham entered into all all those years ago. Uh, Philippians 3 verse 20 tells us that our our conversation, that is our citizenship, is in heaven from whence we also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, For you who are the Lord's, when you came to Christ, you became a citizen of the heavenly kingdom and that kingdom is your home. Uh, And what that means is that like Abraham... This world in its current state is not our home. This world in its current state is something that we're just passing through. In John 17, verse 14, in prayer, the Savior spoke of his people and he said, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And he immediately followed it up by asking, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil you know, just because we've become citizens of the heavenly kingdom does not mean that God immediately whips us off to heaven the moment we're saved. Instead, we're called to live as heavenly citizens here in the world until the time comes when God brings us home. We're to be in the world even though we're not of the world. We're in a place to which fundamentally we do not really belong. And obviously there's all sorts of challenges that go with that. There are real pressures that come with trying to live for Christ in a place that's set against him. In John 17, verse 14, that verse I quoted, I left out some words a moment ago. The Lord said, the world hath hated them because they are not of the world. There are pressures that come with living for Christ in a place that is not our home and in fact is set against the Savior. And if you think of that challenge, living for Christ in the midst of a world that hates Christ and hates the things of Christ and therefore his people, you come to Daniel and you come to a very relevant book of the Bible. It's the account of Daniel's life, or at least of certain key moments in Daniel's life, as he lives for God 
in a foreign land. Now, it's a, it's a relatively difficult book of the Bible. It certainly has some well-known uh, accounts in it, like that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, or Daniel in the lion's den. But it also has some very strange and difficult visions, and you know, visions of statues and beasts and horns and conflict, the particular meaning of which promotes no end of debate. Uh, and certainly as we make our way through the book, especially later on when we come to those more difficult passages of the book, I can guarantee you right now I will not have the answer to all of the intricate questions that might be raised in your mind. I'll probably try and give you some suggestions here and there as to how I understand the meaning of some of these things, but I'll not have every answer for you. I can just guarantee it straight away. But, but right at the beginning, let me give you a note of caution. People can go badly wrong with the book of Daniel because they merely come to this book and they try to view it as something of a puzzle book, piecing together all the little details in those later prophecies and visions and so on, trying to work out what's going on right now or what's going to happen in the future. And at the same time, as they delve into all the little details, they forget the big picture. And as you take in the big picture of this book, it's a book which, among other things, is a tremendous challenge and encouragement to the people of God, as we live for Christ in a foreign land, in the midst of an unchristian world. It has tremendous value for us, as we see in Daniel, in his example and that of his friends, what it actually means to live for God in the midst of all the pressures of this world. And it's a book as well with tremendous encouragements, as we see a glorious God who reigns above the rising and the falling of earthly empires. You, you can see throughout this book emphasis on the various kingdoms of men. And yet one of the key verses in the book is in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, where Daniel declares that in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. It's a book that sets forth oftentimes in prophetic and apocalyptic type form the exact same truth that Jesus Christ declared when he said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, there is a God in heaven who rules above the kingdoms of men. So are you a believer who is discouraged as you look around yourself in the modern world and you see the strength of secular society, you see the tactics of certain politicians who promote an anti-Christian agenda, you see the maneuvers of multinational companies with all their strength and uh, often no friends to the Christian and you're, you're worried about the way things are going in the world. Here's a book of encouragement for you, showing you a God who reigns above it all. Are you maybe here and you're currently living for yourself and you're not living for God at all and the Lord doesn't have your heart? Well, here's a book for you too because it's a book that challenges you. To, it shows you that all other things will fall and that only the kingdom of Christ stands at the end and that you need to be part of that kingdom through faith in him. This is a valuable book for the church of Jesus Christ. I trust a valuable book for ourselves in the weeks to come as we give our attention to it. But it starts in these opening verses not so much with triumph, 
not with glorious, optimistic things, but with trouble, with disaster even, with captivity. You read in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. You read that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into into his hand. He, He carries off the vessels of the house of God, brings them back to the land of Shinar, into his own, the temple of his own God. And you discover that along with these things, certain children from the king's family were also carried off, the, the royal children. In verse 6, it tells us that among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so as we begin this book, what we're immediately shown is a group of young children, probably early teenagers, And they're taken from their home, taken from their families, taken from the promised land, taken from the temple, taken away from the things of God, and they are brought into captivity in Babylon. Hence begins the need to live for God in a foreign land. So something of an introduction today, we're we're wanting to just consider this captivity of the children of Judah, the, the captivity of the children of Judah. And first of all, just take in the the conflict that leads to this captivity. Uh, The first verse tells us about the king of Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and specifically that he came up against Jerusalem and he besieged that city. Now, if you're you're loosely familiar with the big picture of the Bible, you you maybe have an idea uh, about the overall story that God had carried Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness. He'd enabled them to conquer the Canaanites and to take possession of the promised land. After the time of the judges, he had established Saul, but then also David on the throne as the king over his people. Since that time, things had become a little bit more messy. The kingdom had been divided a couple of generations later. You had the northern kingdom of what's known as Israel, um, who had rebelled against David and David's family. Uh, And then you had the southern kingdom of Judah, which had held fast to God's appointed king, uh, those from from David's line. Well, by this point in in the Bible, in Daniel, the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen quite a long time ago um, through captivity by the, the Assyrian Empire, Uh, about 150 years previously. Uh, Through their sin, their wickedness, God had allowed them to be carried off already many, many years ago. The southern kingdom of Judah remained. They were preserved. They were kept by the Lord. But eventually, same sort of thing happens to them. Because of their sin, they would end up being carried off into captivity too. Now, the great enemy for them was not the Assyrians, but the Babylonian Empire. At that point, they had already defeated the Assyrians and essentially swallowed them up. So the big enemy now is the Babylonians, this great empire uh, that spans a great region of the world. And they've come up now against Judah. And the actual captivity of Judah, it it took place in a number of stages. It wasn't just like one battle and then everyone's carried away. Sometimes we think of it like that. Uh, It was a lot more messy than that. Uh, Three stages, you can, we, we read a bit part of it at least in 2 Kings 24, You see something of it in 2 Chronicles 36 as well. Uh, First of all, in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who had only just become the king of Babylon, really, he besieged Jerusalem and he defeated it. 
That's what we're reading about here at the start of Daniel. This very first stage of the captivity. This very first victory of Nebuchadnezzar against Jerusalem. He didn't take everyone away, just certain individuals. Jehoiakim, the current king, he was allowed to stay on the throne, sort of as Nebuchadnezzar's puppet king. But people like Daniel and Hananiah, some of these favored children, they were carried off into captivity. Eight years later, Jehoiakim rebelled, Nebuchadnezzar was back, and this time Jehoiakim was carried off as well. Another puppet king was put in place. Eventually, though, after another rebellion, about 11 years later, Judah was brought to total ruin, and the people were taken away altogether. So as they say, the events here are at the very first stage of all of that, when Daniel is taken into captivity. Right at the start of this, Israel still exists as a place. They still have a king on their throne, admittedly a puppet king. He's sort of under the control of Nebuchadnezzar, but he's still on the throne in Israel, in Judah. It still exists. But here's Daniel, and he finds himself brought into this foreign land. Now, in just giving you that historical setting, first of all, let me stress, this is a real historical book. We're not reading a fable when we come to the book of Daniel. It is set in real history. It is history. I say that because there are liberal Bible scholars today who would come to Daniel and they pretty much say, well, this is just a a book of fanciful stories. Uh, And these things never actually happened. We're not meant to think they did. It's just fanciful stories. Now, a big part of the reason for that is that they just rule out the idea of miracles and prophecy. And so the idea of Daniel surviving a night in the lion's den or, or the three men surviving in the fiery furnace, it's just too, too good to be true. It couldn't possibly be, they would say. Or, or you go later on into Daniel and you see some of these prophecies that are given and how they spot on play out throughout history. And it just seems too far-fetched to think that Daniel could have possibly given any of these things back in that day. So they say, well, this is surely a book of fables written much later in history. Be clear as we come to this book, we're dealing with real history. Events that began to occur in 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem, besieged it, defeated it, and carried Daniel and the others away from their home. Certainly the Lord Jesus Christ thought of this book as real history and of Daniel as a real person in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, he, he made reference to the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Christ recognized Daniel as a real person and a prophet, no less, one who spoke. So, so this is real history we're dealing with. But then as you think of this historical battle between Babylon and, and Jerusalem I also want you to be clear about the spiritual aspect of all this. See, we might be tempted to read these introductory verses as merely a bit of political drama. You know, one empire is coming against another country, and that's all there is to this. It's just the Babylonians have decided they want more land, and off they go to Judah. And that's all that's happening. It's just a a gritty human political struggle. Be clear that much more is going on than that. See, as we see Babylon setting herself up against Jerusalem, 
I would suggest to you that this is part of the ongoing spiritual warfare that there has always been between the children of God and the children of this world. Now, yes, of course, there's human politics involved, that's for sure. But remember, in this world, we wrestle not just against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Throughout the book of Daniel, we're going to see a lot of imagery that speaks about earthly kingdoms and empires and the strength of man, and and Babylon is part of that. And in Daniel, it's constantly contrasted with the kingdom of God. You have all the kingdoms of men, Babylon really at the very heart of it all, and then contrasted with it is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. You know, even in this initial battle, Babylon coming against Jerusalem, I would put it to you, it is part of the ongoing struggle between the children of this world and the children of God, the forces of darkness and the Lord of light. You might remember the history of Babylon, how uh, way back men sought to form a a, a great anti-God empire. And right at the heart of that anti-God empire, they sought to build their glorious tower, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babylon. That endeavor was the, you could say, the prototype, the, the, very, um, the very pattern for this mass of human strength exerted against God and against his people. And what we have here is Nebuchadnezzar rises up against Jerusalem and he comes against the temple of God and so on. It's simply one, one battle in that age-old war between the people of God and the people of this world. Now, of course, I'm aware, and we'll see in a moment, God was working in this, and God, God was sovereign as he gave uh, Judah into the hands of Babylon. That's true, but that doesn't take away what, uh, the wicked devices that are going on here. Remember what the Lord said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. That There's always been this this enmity, this conflict, this warfare between the children of God and the children of the serpent. You could say here that Babylon and Jerusalem, they represent the two cities to which people belong. And it's one or the other. You either belong to Babylon or you belong to Jerusalem. The Bible uses language that way all the time when it speaks of one or the other. You know, like when the Lord told us in Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. It's one or the other. Your loyalty can't be to both Jerusalem and Babylon. Your loyalty can't be both to God and to this world at the same time. And because of the two differing contradictory loyalties, There's this ongoing war, and sometimes it explodes into full-blown battle. Something of that is happening here when the children of the world, this great empire of men, boasting in their strength, rise up against the place where God's name is known. Again, and we'll see it in a minute, I recognize that God was bringing Babylon as a judgment of his people, But I would say it's something like how evil men were used by God when they wickedly took Christ and put him on the cross. God 
working in all of this does not take away from the fact that there was evil design behind the forces of men coming against the place where the true God's name was known. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar seems to win some sort of spiritual victory here because he takes the the treasures from the temple of God and he carries them back to the land of Shinar. Jehovah has been defeated, or at least so it seems. I stress all that because it is vital that we have a right view of this world, whether it's a, a right view of the great movements of world politics or whether it's a right view of the small events that go on day to day in our own individual lives. In pretty much all of life, spiritual conflict lies at the very center of it. And we would do well to keep that view of things in mind. If you're saved by grace, your citizenship is in heaven. And be aware, therefore, of the spiritual conflict that you are called to engage in, not once every so often, but but every day. Be ready to resist the devil that he might flee from you. Arm yourself day by day in the power of God. Strengthen your hand by leaning upon the strong one. Be ready for this conflict because be sure that the forces of darkness are coming against you and do come against you. You know, the way, this way of viewing the world, it would also challenge every one of us to maybe stop and just ask the question, which side am I on in all of this? As you think of these two opposing sides in the Bible, the, the children of the world, the children of God, the forces of darkness, the, the Lord of, of light. Which side are you on today? Does your allegiance belong to the Lord or to the world? Does your allegiance lie with Babylon or does it, rely, does it lie with Jerusalem above? Who has your heart? So there is the, the conflict leading to this captivity. Think as well then about the confusion in this captivity. Shockingly, when Babylon came against Jerusalem, Babylon won. Now, I suppose on the one hand, Jerusalem's defeat, Judah's defeat was expected because after generations of unfaithfulness to the Lord, God had consistently warned his people that this day was coming when they would be carried off into captivity. But as you think of Daniel and the others, you know, on a personal level, it must have been pretty confusing to them. Why has this happened to us? Why is it that we are carried away from our home? Now, again, remember, Israel still exists at this point, or at least Judah in the south. Judah still exists. They still have a king. They're still there at the temple. Daniel might be asking himself, why has this happened to me? Many others, even some of the ungodly ones from Israel, uh, they're still there in the land. Why has this happened to me? You know, as we think of the individuals that we're introduced to here, we see young people who are very godly. You know, Daniel was determined to honor the Lord even in a foreign land. And therefore, soon enough, we'll see in chapter one, he would not defile himself with the king's meat. He would rather forego the pleasures of Babylon than lose out with his God. He was a godly young man. As you go through the book and we, we see Daniel, at least in these snapshots, growing and maturing and standing as even right to his old age. You see a man who lived life with tremendous faithfulness and practical godly living. He was a godly man. Then think of his friends. Think of Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And 
they have such a, a conviction to honor God that they go into the fiery furnace in chapter 2. These are, are men that, young men, young people who are very godly. They might understand this if they were themselves personally wicked. Well, okay, fair enough. It seems that God has judged us for our sin, but, but these are godly young people. And there they are, carried off into captivity. Why has this happened to us? Plenty of others in Judah are not like us. They're, they're ungodly. They have no time for the Lord. Why has it happened to us? I think it's the case that quite a number of God's people, perhaps all of us, are brought to ask those questions at at least some point in life. You know, why has the Lord allowed this thing to happen to me? It's a time of confusion. Especially in those times when we have been walking with the Lord, we've been serving the Lord, we've been living faithfully by the power of the Lord, and, and yet trouble comes our way. Why did this happen to me? Why did the Lord allow this? Now, there's never an easy answer to that question. Of course, in the case of Daniel and his friends, as you go through the book, you discover God did have tremendous things to do through these individuals. Uh, Daniel would eventually be raised up as one of the most powerful men in the whole empire. The faithfulness of these men would result in the word of God going right throughout the empire and the name of the Lord being lifted up. So, so there were great things God was going to do through these men. That might give us part of the answer at least. But you know, whenever, whenever those questions come to you and me, why has this happened? Why has the Lord allowed this disaster to come my way? Uh, and especially when we can't see into the future and know the things that the Lord might accomplish and certainly we can't see into eternity and see the mind of God in it all. We ought to recognize that the Lord does not call us to understand all these things or even ask us to understand all these things. At the heart of the Christian life, it is the statement in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. And what that's telling you, what that statement means is that we don't need all the answers in order to proceed. We, we don't need to see the full picture to, to go forward. Instead, we walk by faith. Now, that does not mean that we walk with a, a foolish optimism. Faith does not mean that you just go, go on ahead and just assume all will be well. Everything will be all right. That's, that's faith. That's not the faith of the Bible. Faith in scripture rests on something. Faith is substantial. Faith is like an anchor that, that finds a hold on the rock. That gets a grip, as it were. And it holds on. Faith rests on the promises of God. Faith rests in the person in whom those promises are gained. That, that is Christ himself. Our faith rests on the Savior and the substantial things that are promised to us in him. So, so walking by faith does not mean that we trudge on in hard times and we just optimistically hope for the best. Maybe it'll turn out all right. Walking by faith means that in, the, in those hard times, in the times when we can't really see what, what's going on, what the Lord is doing, why this is happening, even then we, we grab hold of God's promises and we recognize, for example, that if God be for us, then who can be against us? There's, there's a, a section of scripture, a, a statement in the word of God that you can hold to. We recognize that our father 
cares for us far more than he cares for the, the sparrows in the air. There's something you're told in scripture and you can lay hold of it. It's solid and you can rest there. We might not understand all of our God's work, but we, we take his promises. We take his revelation of himself as a God who is good and wise and mighty to save through his word. You rest there. If you're saved, this is exactly what scripture calls you to, a life of faith. In the days of Christ's public ministry, he was asked by the Pharisees to give them a sign, that is a miraculous sign, that he truly was who he claimed to be. He refused and he said, well, the only sign that would be given to them was the sign of the prophet Jonas, by which he meant he would rise on the third day. But he refused. The point was they didn't need some new sign. They already had the word of God, which testified of him. The word of God pointed to him. They were meant to, by faith, embrace the word of God. Well, that's what you and I are called to, to take God's word and to hold it, to hold to God's word by faith when he tells you that the death of Christ can make you clean. We can't see that. I mean, we don't get a note from heaven literally falling out of the sky that says you've been forgiven. But we do have the word of God already given to us that gives us the promises and by by faith we hold to them and by faith the spirit of God testifies to our hearts that it's so. In Christ we have forgiveness, we have peace with God. The word of God declares it, we rest there. That's how we stand when it comes to the big matters of life. How, How our eternity will go. We rest by faith, we go forward by faith. God has spoken and God is true. Well, if we can do that with regard to eternity, if as the people of God, we're called to go beyond the grave by faith in God. Well, are we not then also in life to face the various circumstances by faith in God? Taking him at his word, resting in Christ our Savior, knowing that our God is who he says he is. We're to walk by faith even in confusing times. As you think of Daniel and his friends, what a confusing thing that godly people such as them should face such trouble to be, I mean, you think of it, ripped from their homes, ripped from their families, transported to a foreign land and their teenagers. And now they're in a place with strange customs and strange people and they they barely know what's going on. And yet they could face it as they walk by faith. One of the major things we're going to see in this book As we watch these individuals grow from childhood, and in Daniel's case, right to old age, we see them facing all of the trials that that come their way by faith, clinging to their God, clinging to his promises, clinging to the word. You can do the same and be sure that the Lord will not let you down. So we've thought about the conflict leading to this captivity and Also the confusion in this captivity. But as we finish then, I want you to see the control over this captivity. You could say that the book of Daniel, it opens with two statements about the Babylonian victory over Jerusalem. First of all, there's the very down-to-earth historical statement that's a statement of real-world historical fact. In the third year... Of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, onto Jerusalem and besieged it. It's a very factual account of history. He came, this king, he besieged the city. 
But then notice verse 2. And verse 2 would lift our eyes up above the, the mundane historical detail. In verse 2 it gives us a theological statement. A statement about God and about his work. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vassals of the house of God. So first of all, we're told about the human activity of Nebuchadnezzar, his forces rising up against Jerusalem. But but then verse 2 pulls back the curtain. And it reminds us that over all of this, the Lord is actually at work. He is ruling. And ultimately, Babylon did not conquer Jerusalem merely because they were stronger. They conquered Jerusalem because God gave Jerusalem over to their hand, over to them. The Lord himself was actually involved in the defeat suffered by his own people. Now, of course, that was something the average person did not really expect. In those days, there were plenty of false prophets who proclaimed peace, peace, when there was no peace. They were saying that all was fine, that God would uphold them, even though God was warning them through true prophets that judgment was coming for their sin. But for many people then, this, this wasn't expected. They were listening to the false prophets. But they'd been living for many years in rebellion against the Lord. And now, finally, true to his word, through genuine prophets, the Lord was chastening his people. The Lord was at work in this. Yes, Babylon had come, Babylon had conquered Jerusalem, but the Lord brought Babylon. And the Lord gave Jerusalem into their hand as a chastisement of his sinful people. Now, there's a warning there for us, especially those of us who are the Lord's. We dare not ever treat sin lightly. We dare not just run our own way, imagining that there'll never be any consequences. The the word of God tells us, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. He deals with us as his children, and therefore, like a loving father, he chasteneth. He he rebukes our sin. He doesn't just leave us to run on in rebellion. He, He ever draws us back to himself, even through rebuke. It's worth noticing that our author, probably Daniel himself, he understood perfectly what was going on. The Lord was at work. He he explains this in verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. He believed the prophetic warnings of Scripture, which had threatened this very thing. God had now started to fulfill his warnings. Now, all of that was very solemn. That God ultimately was at work and God was bringing down his people for their disobedience. That's a solemn thing. But there's also a note of great encouragement there. Because if Daniel being carried into captivity was not just some accident from history, if it was not just some coincidence, but if in fact the hand of God truly was in it, like our text tells us, if it came about through the Lord fulfilling his word, and ultimately the Lord was the great actor and not men, well then that also means that Daniel could trust God to continue working and to continue fulfilling his word and bringing his promises to pass. Just as the the downfall of Jerusalem was the fulfillment of God's promise, admittedly a warning, but a fulfillment of God's promise all the same, well, so Daniel could also hold on to all of God's promises concerning his own personal needs, and also concerning the promises of restoration for the land. If God was involved in Jerusalem being brought into captivity, 
If ultimately God was the one who brought it about, then ultimately, even here in Babylon, God still had his hand upon the wheel. And all was still safe in the care of the true sovereign. So Daniel might look around him now in Babylon and he might be worried about Nebuchadnezzar and he he might be afraid of the paganism and the wickedness that there was and the might of that huge human, human empire. But here's a truth that could put his fears to rest. The true sovereign was at work. God himself was on the throne. And again, as we indicated in the introduction, that is one of the major themes of this book. The book of Daniel shows us a God who is near to his people, who continues to orchestrate all things in our personal lives. He does so in the lives of Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. He continues to provide for them and he does too for us who are his. And not only that, does does God care about the individual needs. But in this book, as Daniel sees the rise and the fall of numerous different Human empires, when he's shown details about the Babylonians or the Medes and the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans and these various empires of men that have arisen, often too these empires of men that have been huge persecutors of the people of God. Yet throughout these different visions and and so on in the book, the truth is emphasized there is a God in heaven. And that's the encouragement for us today. If you know the God of heaven through faith in Christ, then you can safely trust all of the affairs of your life as confusing and as difficult as they might be to his hand. If there's a God in heaven and he's your God, the one who has brought about your salvation, who's dealt with your sin and brought you to himself, then you are safe in his hand. As you look around you and you fear the movements of this world on the grand stage, the political wranglings, the immorality promoted, the the rumors and, and threats of conflict in the world, you can trust it all to the hand of your father, knowing he's in control and he does do all things well. He rules over the affairs of men and he rules, remember, so as to establish his kingdom, the kingdom of Christ And to bless men through a saviour who has served us unto death and shed his blood that we might be forgiven and fitted for heaven. So tell me, do you know the saviour as your saviour? Do you know the God of heaven as your God? If you do, trust him today in the stormy waves of this world. And if not, well then come today to Christ. And take him as your own and have him take you as his own and trust your life to his care, the one who can deal with your sin and keep you right through this earthly pilgrimage and bring you safe to stand before his presence with exceeding great joy at that last day. May God bless his word to us. Amen.